welcome to another book lunch at noon. Um, I'm your host, Mitch Hampton, Journey of Mystique podcast. This is uh, will be um, episode two of my series on Irving Singer's The Nature of Love, which though is in three volumes, I suspect we will be doing more than three episodes in this series. So uh, vast and... Um, Interesting is Sainer's text work, and we're going to have a lot of surprises. And we're going to have. I'm going to introduce today. I'm going to introduce for the first time my big screen TV into the proceedings, so we can look at things in a better, with some a, bit, a little bit better visual acuity and all the rest of it. So, um, so I'm going to move. Uh, I'm going to do some uh, moving things around now. You have to bear with me, um, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, here we go. I got it. It's the best we can do for now, but I hope uh, we got a gonna play something for you here. Um, uh, this is um, well, I'm gonna play two clips that are related. Uh, the first clip, of course, is from the bandwagon. Vincent Minnelli, Stanley Donen, um, uh Betty Condon, Adolph Green, all the folks, Fred Astaire, Sid Charisse, all the different people involved in it um, in the 50s. Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse here. This is one of the most famous uh, songs, uh, moments of romance in all of Hollywood cinema. So it's very, very important in that sense. Um, it's equal, at the very least, equal to the MGM pictures with Ginger Rogers. I mean, of course, I could have played Top Hat. Isn't it a rainy day, or is it a day to be? Uh, uh, isn't it a lovely day to be uh, caught in the rain and um, you know the Continental and all these things? But this is the bandwagon, and I'm going to play a little surprise. I won't tell you what it is yet. Related to this clip after, and um, and I'm going to get. Don't worry, I'm going to get to the serious text of Singer and 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 some other things soon. So bear with me. What the. Thank you. 
Okay. Feelings that everybody has. So here's here's the thing. Um, um, that song is an older song by Dietz and Schwartz, Arthur Schwartz, Howard Dietz, called Dancing in the Dark. And you heard an instrumental, what we would call, back then we would have called a society arrangement, instrumental sort of dance orchestra type stuff. Very popular in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and that instead of, you know, Fred Astaire singing, dancing, which he did sing, just instrumental and just uh, Sid Charisse and Fred dancing in a, um, a reconstruction of Central Park. Um, that's Irving Singer in front of you there. I actually um, going to play a little bit of his actual classroom footage from the early 2000s. And um, now we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, what do we have here? Different but related. In 1977, I think, or 78, I forget which season, Steve Martin and Gilda Radner did a parody um, a tribute to that famous scene on Saturday Night Live. I'm going to play that for you now. Of course, it's 1977, and see Steve Martin. Thank you. 
course, we have to go back to reality, um, which is 1978. And of course, the disco music comes in with a mini Moog synthesizer solo on top. I don't know who this, I don't know if that's Paul Schaefer playing that or not. I don't know all every session musician. I used to know all this stuff. I used to know Phil Upchurch and, you know, Gary Kane and Anthony Jackson's on bass. I mean, I had this knowledge because I like this music and I knew who all the cats were playing it. I don't know, but this is a live studio audience, of course. And um, so not live in its, in its heyday. It's uh, one of its, uh, uh, one of its periods. So um, what does any of this have to do with anything? Well, for one thing, um, a treatment of love um, in the arts, certainly we know doesn't have to show people having sex or people um, kissing or even people talking. Um, it could be completely nonverbal. And, um, you know, the uh, people that, um, you know, the, the kind of the people that invented these, these scenes and these, these forms um, knew all about that. And like, well, let's do it this way. Let's express. And also, of course, it, it you know, begs the question of, you know, um, you know, there are things, uh, uh, matters of what we say, matters of the heart, matters of the soul are in part nonverbal or can be nonverbal um, without at one and the same time privileging the nonverbal, the immediate, the raw, because as you know, I like construction and formal creation. So is a little bit of a tension in the arts between, you know, um, immediate spontaneous speech, such as I'm doing right this very minute and constructing a novel with characters or a poem or people dancing on a stage. So these are all different, different so I, I didn't know how quite how to proceed. I never really do fully. I sort of do, but I don't. You know, I sort of plan some things. But I wanted to show a little clip of Irving Singer in class at MIT. And he was a uh, uh, he's he's sort of introductory talk about the kind of person he is, the kind of scholar he is, what philosophy is. I'm going to play a little bit of that, and I'm going to go into a little discussion of at least three of his books, and then we're going to come back. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to show very, very different clips in terms of mood, feeling, tone, yet rather similar to what we've just watched. And we'll get to that. But let me get a fine here. If you're wondering what Irving Singer was like, this is a pretty good. Uh, oh, where is he here? <laughs> Having trouble. Oh, there we go. In other other courses in this department and in every philosophy department in America, uh, they teach you that more explicitly than I do. My hope is that you'll pick it up from me, and uh, in writing your papers, uh, it will show. So the context, what he's talking about here is that he doesn't teach logic or, or math. He doesn't teach pure logic like Frege or something, somebody like that, if you know who those names are. Um, or like Bertrand Russell, he, he, he's the heart and soul guy. He's the humanities. He's teaching a course on love after all. And the classroom discussions are most interesting because um, uh, civil union slash gay marriage is up for discussion, debate, and they discuss it in this very class, I think, for a period of time. And then, um, uh, well, anyhow, I just wanted to get, I wanted to sort of give you the context that he's saying, I don't do that. I do the 
sort of the fun stuff in a way, you know, kind of, I talk about it. The development of that. I don't presuppose any philosophy courses, any preparation at all. So don't feel uh, embarrassed if you say, oh, but I haven't ever studied logic. Uh, you don't need it. Uh, the second the second thing is that, is uh, what, what it is that makes philosophy into an art form, at least my philosophy. Um, and that is the, uh, the fact that there is something about the nature of the fine arts, the, the humanities in general, uh, that lends itself to studying about what life is in general. I have to, I want to refine that one little bit more. When I say humanities, I really mean humanistic subjects, because there are some uh, subjects that are called humanities and are humanities, like um, um, the study of um, syntax or the study of um, Greek, um, Greek uh, forms of poetry, just the forms. They belong to humanities, but they're not necessarily humanistic. They can be done in a very technical way that doesn't throw much light on, a light on what human existence and human interests and human beings are like. The humanistic attitude, which is more often in the humanities, but are only a part of humanities, uh, the humanistic attitude is concerned with the Socratic questions about how to live. Now, this is what is done by all of the arts in their own ways. The arts too, of course, have two divisions. You can't do music uh, just by humming any tune, you have to learn how to um, deal with scales. You have to learn a great deal of technical information. I was about to say you have to learn how to read music, uh, but there have been great musicians, uh, Luciano Pavarotti, for instance, the famous opera tenor who never learned. He's never learned how to read music. <laughs> uh, he's still a great tenor. Um, and Irving Berlin. Who uh, the songwriter you've probably heard of? Um, he never learned how to read music. He would improvise on a special piano that was made for him. Uh, and Pavarotti uh, listens to the uh, to, to the, uh, the arias he's supposed to sing and learns them, but he doesn't read the music. That's fine if it works. Nevertheless, there are, in, there are all sorts of technical things about the nature of pitch and about the use of the voice in the case of Irving Berlin, about chord structures that you have to acquire as you wouldn't be a musician. At the same time, there's something in music and in poetry and in painting and in architecture and sculpture, uh, rug weaving maybe too, the uh, panorama of arts is much greater than most people realize, uh, that goes beyond the mere technique if you limit yourself to, you're a composer who limits himself to technique, um, you're not going to be a great composer. You're more likely to make studies, like studies for the piano, uh, exercises for the piano. You can do that with knowledge of technique. To be a great composer, you really have to have a way of seeing the world, a way of feeling what it is to be a human being who both sees and hears the world, a way of convey conveying your musical ideas into the feelings of people who may not be musicians. 
then in that sense, conveying your own feelings. That's very important. Actually, that's the heart of our podcast right there. So he's saying that, um, you know, that you have to create, you know, be an artist, you have to create something that, that it's relatable to other people, people who may not have the skill, or even knowledge of musical notes or any of that and communicate that. And he said, all the arts deal with these, with these, uh, these matters. And so he considered himself, as he says there, an artist um, who just happens to work in the medium of philosophy, if that makes any sense at all. And so we're going to return now to Irving Sainer. Um, I wanted to have a little um, digression here and go to, is it book? Let's see. Yeah, book two. Um, he has a quite a long chapter. Uh, unfortunately, you can't get to all of it, alas and alack. Um, speaking of which, is Shakespeare saying alas and alack, right? Shakespeare, philosopher of love. Now, I'm just going to read, you know, some of some of Singer's text where he talks about, well, he talks about the three, well, four, because he includes, um, yeah, he includes, of course, the famous passage from Twelfth Night. Um, and then he talks about, of course, Troilus and Cressida, Romeo and Juliet, above all, and Antony and Cleopatra. Now, I don't know if I can get all up to all of that, but <laughs> get to at least some of it. Because in the last episode, we did spend a lot of time on Proust, who um, at that time I had wanted to return again to Proust. But now I'm realizing that, you know, we can't do an we can't do a series on every single author. We have to we have to. So I'm going to try to, you know, bear with me here. But um, I'm going to read a little bit of the opening of um, his introduction. According to Sainer, uh, Shakespeare was a philosopher of love. That's how he's defined Shakespeare. Now. I should say a couple things about Shakespeare's scholarship, about which I'm fairly, really, actually really well read, at least past 20 years. So I'm going to recommend some books. Um, I'm going to recommend Frank Kermode, Shakespeare's Language is really, really, really good. The more famous book, of course, is Harold Bloom's The Invention of the Human. Um, I don't know when that came out. I think 98, 02. And more recently, Marjorie Garber, who is the Shakespeare professor at Harvard University, uh, her text, Shakespeare After All. Uh, Marjorie Garber is probably more familiar to some of you as a queer, radical, queer um, theorist. Um, she wrote a text about drag kings, drag queens, cross-dressing, hermaphroditism, Ovid, all these things I forget. I think it's called Vested Interests. Um, I actually read that when it came out in the 90s, too. There's a little bit of Marjorie Garber on, on YouTube dealing with Charles and Cressida, but I'm going to open this. Um, um, this this, this uh, first quote is, is not is not saying or Shakespeare. What is love? Tis not hereafter. Present mirth hath present laughter. What's to come is still unsure. In delay there lies no plenty. Then come kiss me, sweet and twenty. Youth's a stuff will not endure. So, you know, that's pretty famous. These lines from Twelfth Night belong to the clown song. In Act Two, Scene Three, they are followed in the next scene by stanzas that link the innocence of love, that's in quotes, innocence of love, to death resulting from rejection by one's beloved. She may be sweet and twenty, 
but she can also be a fair, cruel maid. Some quotes, right? If we put the two songs together, we may see in Shakespeare a kinship with the realistic strand of Renaissance love theory. The first song even sounds like an elaboration of Lorenzo de Medici's poem about youth and beauty. Okay, so uh, that flee forevermore. And like Lorenzo in that place, Shakespeare would seem to have no faith in religious concepts that promise a superior consummation of love in the hereafter. The subtitle of Twelfth Night is What You Will. And Shakespeare presupposes that extensive enjoyment here, now, and however long nature allows is what everyone really wills, wills as the outcome of sexual love. So, you know, uh, in, a few, in a few minutes, we're going to get to his elaboration of that because Shakespeare, Shakespeare is, is, is often talked today about as an actor and a theater person. But what unfortunately gets left out is how extremely well-educated he were, was in philosophy and theology. I mean, this is not, you know, and, and, and so all of that learning uh, actually makes its way in all sorts of complex ways into his plays. So they're not just, they're not just about, you know, um, well, they're not just about the characters and not just about the plots. So, um, um, I'm trying, I'm trying to find the, try and find the, uh, find the thing. Let me read a little bit more. So he, he draws some comparisons to Shakespeare and Dante and Keats. We misread Shakespeare's drama if we take it as merely the play of ideas and attitudes belonging to the characters in each work and never to the dramatist. Though Keats may be right in seeing Shakespeare as the exemplar of negative capability through sympathetic imagination, he identifies with each view of the world as it contributes to a human experience, himself avoiding tendentious resolutions. Shakespeare's thought is inwardly motivated and by no means random. Shakespeare's never random. The conflict in each dramatic situation expresses the mind of a moralist as well as a methodology. If Shakespeare has no comprehensive ideology, no all-embracing metaphysics, his perspective nevertheless encompasses every aspect of speculation about man and nature. In many respects, the Shakespearean plays are all post-Ficino and post-Luther. They show the influence of what was in the air during the Elizabethan and Jacobian periods. But they also follow a development that defies all traditional categories and must be studied as stages in Shakespeare's very own individual, even idiosyncratic thinking. See how he's portraying Shakespeare as an intellectual, as a thinker? Um, it's very, very important because, again, it gets left out because of, you know, we... Shakespeare's many things, but this is this is about the this is about the fact that Shakespeare's being influenced by Mauricio Ficino and sort of uh, newer Christian slash humanist slash free thinking slash I don't know what word to use anachronistic word progressive ideas about humanity and nature all coming into these plays, you know. Um, 
there's just so much here. Um, Here we go. It says, uh, it gets a Troilus and Cressida. By its plot alone, Troilus and Cressida deals with two different phenomena, war and sexual love. The two do not exist independently, however. The Trojan War will end if Paris returns Helen and Troilus loses Cressida once her father defects to the Greeks. This much Shakespeare inherits from tradition, but the analysis of the interrelationship between war and love, he contributes all himself from his own point of view. That means Shakespeare's deep point of view. Helen and Cressida are beautiful women, desirable both as sexual objects and as manifestations of the beautiful. Beginning with this fact, Shakespeare then asks, what can truly justify the sacrifices that loving them entails? So again, it's that asking of a philosophic question. So um, I, had a, I, had a, I had a really, uh, uh, I won't, maybe I'd call him a mentor. I don't know. He's somebody I, I studied a long time ago who says that Shakespeare is always asking the Socratic questions of like, what is justice? What is love? What is hate? What is war? What is prejudice? What is statehood? What is statecraft? You know, you ask these sort of questions they're apparatic questions. In other words, there are no answers, or at least solid answers. And if you come up with something and you say, well, if you say that what is statecraft is justice, which would be a common answer today. People would say, ask, what is the state for? If you're going to have a state, it's for justice or equality. You would say, uh-uh, wrong. You may like that, but maybe the state's for something else. Who knows? I don't know. I'm just using, talking off, off the top of my head. But, you know, kind of, it's not It's not about a, uh, a little like the math problems in Irving Singer there, it's not about an actual answer. I'm going to turn this off because we got these distractions here. Um, so he's doing that in Charles and Cressida. So uh, Shakespeare explicitly examines all these questions in Act 2, Scene 2, where the Trojans are deliberating about the continuance of the war they are fighting in order to retain Helen. Okay, that's what's happening. Hector, the hero of the Trojans, both morally and militarily, insists that, quote, she is not worth what she doth cost the keeping, unquote. To which Troilus asks, what's aught but tis valued? Hector's reply expresses a belief in objective order that reason can discern as the grounds for valuation. So that's the thing I've been talking about all along this series about this platonic shape, um, Plato, Socrates, that there's a rational order, unified order to the universe. It's metaphysical and you can call it God, you call it whatever, that there's just this order that you just got to check into. Um, and so that's a, that's a view, but it's kind of, um, Hector is a character that actually thinks that, at least when this. So he goes on, this is Hector speaking, but value dwells not in particular will, it holds his estimate and dignity as well were in tis precious of itself as in the prizer. Tis mad idolatry to make the service greater than the God. In answering this, Troilus argues in effect that Hector has forgotten that value in something means committing oneself to it and commitment depends upon individual well as well will 
as well as objective judgment. So you have to have a harmony according, again, this is not my view. It's not even Irving Sinning's view. It's the character, characters of the play. Um, you have to bring, have a harmony between what's objective and your own inner feeling. Okay. Commitment. Honor consists in recognizing and accepting the nature of one's commitment. It is significant that Troilus illustrates this point by reference to a hypothetical marriage, not a real marriage, hypothetical, okay? I take today a wife and my election is led on the conduct of my will. My will enkindeth my mind, eyes, and ears. Two traded pilots twixt the dangerous shores of will and judgment. How may I avoid? How may I avoid? Although my will distaste what it elected, the wife I chose? Thus far, the debate has proceeded on the level of philosophic disputation. It is interrupted by the outburst of Cassandra, whose divinations put her in touch with reality in a manner that reason cannot accept. She is therefore dismissed as a madwoman, and her brothers continue as before. In making his final statement, Hector appeals to a principle of order in nature, comparable to what Ulysses has also been lecturing his fellow Greeks in Act One. Just as Ulysses claims that the physical universe observes, quote, degree, priority, proportion, season, form, unquote, so too does Hector maintain that, quote, nature craves all dues be rendered to their owners. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, um, um, the character in uh, Sunday in the Park with George. You know, he's always going about, you know, form, proportion, these, these lists of them, these nouns that he's very, to which he's very attached, right? So kind of kind of sense it like that. Um, I mean, it goes on to say that Hector, Hector does not prevail. He yields when Troilus asserts that Helen is for all the Trojans, quote, a theme of honor and renown, a spur to valiant and magnanimous deeds. Quote, unquote. That's supposed to be a conversation stopper. You know, like Helen is this, honor, period. In saying this, Troilus has transferred the discussion to a different, somewhat, somewhat extraneous level. He is now appealing not to Hector's sense of right or wrong, good or bad, but rather to his professional ideals as a warrior. To one who fights in pursuit of fame and glory, it may not matter that the cause of contention is hardly worth the struggle. What matters most is one's dedication and heroic self-sacrifice, even if the object for which one fights is worthless. This renews Torlis's emphasis upon the importance of commitment, but it is not now cast, and is now cast into a mold of military idealism that Hector cannot resist. In allowing Troilus to win the argument, okay, he manifests a moral and intellectual flaw that later, if you know the play, costs him his life when he foolishly expects Achilles to abide by principles of chivalric honor, as he and Troilus do, instead of acting deceitfully for reasons of self-preservation. In a sense, Achilles enacts retribution by nature's laws for Hector's having succumbed to the reasoning of Troilus. But this functions as irony in the play. 
dramatic irony. For if nature truly embodied objective laws of honor and rectitude, how could it possibly choose the unscrupulous Achilles as its representative? And so that's just a little, little touch of Troyes and Cressetta. Um, goes on to say, in Troilus and Cressida, Shakespeare would seem to be arguing both that love is freely given, bestowed a, a freely given bestowal of value. Remember Sainer's twins' appraisal and bestowal and how Sainer is very adamant in these texts that you need that both are necessary. That, you know, that appraisal without bestowal is, in, you know, is, is um, not enough, right? It's kind of incomplete, kind of like a house half finished or something, right? So any anyway. of um, love is a that love is a freely given bestowal of value, which may seem magnificent at the time, but ultimately wrecks havoc, and also that it is a com complex of delsary appraisals about the beloved's character in one's own capacities. In either event, nature is shown to be cunning in its ability to hide from man the realities that are actually motivating him. Such is the explicit belief of two characters in the play, Pandarus and Thersites. Okay, so that, that you know, he's, he says, if we think of Troilus and Cressida as a quasi-tragedy whose premise is the inconstancy of women, it may readily be seen as a companion to Much Ado About Nothing, written a mere year or two earlier. That work is a comedy, and it ends with joyous weddings, but it too begins with the fact of inconstancy this time in the mail. At the very beginning, Benedict goes on to talk about, you know, comparing these plays. Um, and he's intervening, Sainter's interviewing in, um, well, not just discussions of who Shakespeare was, that is what kind of an artist he was, you know. Um, he, he um, But also things that were said about him by say Samuel Johnson. Dr. Johnson, for example, or for that matter, after Sainer, Marjorie Garber in her Shakespeare After All. People say a lot of things about him, right? So, and one of the things they said about him when this book was written, I think this book comes from the early 1980s, this particular volume, I think. Um, although the volumes stretch from the mid 60s to up until it's, it's, I think late 80s, this, this one is late 80s. So, um, um, and people used to always say, well, Shakespeare is this. One of the things they would say about Shakespeare is he's non-religious or he's skeptical about the accepted metaphysical theologies, ideologies, and doctrines of his era. But if you if you look at Shakespeare as, um, as I do in part, not only this, as this revolutionary, totally unique, sui generis, artist, poet, dramatist, Everything about him will be original and he won't really accept much of anything, you know, that's been passed down. At least, uh, at least he won't accept it uncritically and with a thorough or comprehensive examination, right? So it's not like, you know. So he says, in saying previously that Shakespeare hardly sees life from a religious point of view, I do not mean to suggest that religious categories were of no importance to him. He is particularly intrigued by the possibility that love between men and women might itself become a religion. And that's, of course, Romeo and Juliet, and to some extent, Antony and Cleopatra, right? That's, that's where that comes in. The idea of love as a religion had preoccupied Shakespeare as early as Romeo and Juliet. There we are presented with the two types of Venus, earthly, as in Rosaline, 
whom Romeo loves with a carnal passion at the beginning, and heavenly in the person of Juliet, who leads him into a realm that the other characters cannot penetrate. The lovers turn to Friar Lawrence as one who is also detached from the material values of the ordinary world. They escape from it much as Aucassin and Nicolette did. And though the ghostly father remarries them in order to legitimate their elopement, they live and die in a union that exists by transcending the normal interests of society. Shakespeare constructs the initial conversation between Romeo and Juliet the interweaving sonnet which first unites them out of conceits about pilgrims, saints, and a holy shrine, right? It follows Romeo's description of Juliet as true beauty, beauty too rich for use, for earth too dear, very famous. And then dumbrates the speech in which she reveals herself as an incarnation of agape, right? Remember the different types of agapes that higher, right? My beauty is as boundless as the sea. My love is deep. The more I give it to thee, the more I have for both are infinite. So then he goes on to talk about in, in Dante in the purgatory, discuss the nature of divine love as an infinite renewal of this sort. But even Dante had not suggested that a mere woman could affect the miracle on her own. Juliet belongs to the secular tradition of courtly romance in ascribing her mystic power, mystical powers to love alone. And in that one sense, in that one all-important, not minor sense, Shakespeare is, 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 of course, revolutionary and doing something totally new and unique on the stage in his time, of course. So that's what that was. A little something there. We move on from Shakespeare. Um, um, I wanted to... Um, before I forget, I mentioned um, last time Bernard Williams, and I mentioned his discussion of the relationship of human beings uh, in different time periods. And so this is the book in which Williams sets out his thesis that the world of the ancients and their artists, you know, everybody from Sophocles to you know, all these folks, um, was actually in some important respects rather similar to our own age. And of course, he's responding, but again, Bernard Williams is one of my favorite philosophers. And he was a, uh, a colleague of Isaiah Berlin. They were very close. They taught, taught together in, in the UK. And um, Williams is perhaps famous for two things. He's famous for his attack on what he calls the moral system. And he preferred what, what he, he preferred, what he preferred is his own ethical idea, but I don't want to get, go down that rabbit hole just yet. And is of course attack on utilitarianism, but in this book, he's showing, he's showing his, um, your edition about ancient, ancient texts. And so he's responding to all these, uh, you know, again, the climate of the, this would have been the mid eighties, 87, 88, you have all these, uh, Historians saying, you know, the people of Aristophanes' um, day or Sophocles' day were just so unlike us and nothing in common with us. You know, of course, Williams goes, we're discussing the idea, of course, of will and intention. This is Williams. This is from Shame and Necessity. Great, great book. 
there is one concept that appears in our everyday theory of action, if that is what it is, and for which there is no noun or direct equivalent in Homer, and that is intention. But I shall claim in the next chapter, the idea is nevertheless still there. When someone acts in the Homeric world, as in our world, okay, he or she brings about various states of affairs, and only some of them does he or she mean to bring about. That in itself is enough to ground the idea of an intention. Indeed, it is hard to see how we could understand the Homeric poems as speaking of human action at all, unless we could find in their words the presence of such a notion, as well as of beliefs, desires, and purposes. These ideas, or ideas very much like them, seem constitutive of the notion of human action. If they are constitutive of that notion, this fact itself might be thought of as a reason for denying that they form a theory of action. Perhaps they do not. But the question whether they form a theory or not, though it is important, though it is important philosophically, does not affect the basic point. Beneath the terms that mark differences between Homer and ourselves lies a complex net of concepts in terms of which particular actions are explained. And this net was the same for Homer as it was for as it is for us today. Indeed, if it were not, could we understand Homer as presenting us with human actions at all? So he's saying we won't even be able to enjoy or read Homer if he didn't have this fundamental connection to us, at least in this respect. And he goes on to say, how could the, the progressivist critics understand him? Only if we can understand him as presenting us with actions can we go on to discover either the similarities or the differences that exist between Homeric ways of relating actions to people society and the non-human world and our own ways of doing these things. I just wanted to get a little, I wanted to, I don't like to bring up things and then trail off and not complete them, you know? And so I never mentioned, I never have the book. I just mentioned this, this old Bernard Williams text. Um, so I did promise I would, I would do a little bit from all three books in every episode. Um, and so it's interesting to go from the middle book and go, do we want to go back further in time or do we to go further ahead in time? Well, I guess we can go to something very narrowly, nearly the present tense day. Go to our modern world. Now I should say that we're not in the modern world anymore. Um, so th this is now quite ancient, the modern world. Um, and we're not even, I'm not even sure we're in the postmodern world. We might be in what the contemporary world. I guess that's kind of now. But anyhow, it's close enough that you could joke about that. Um, So there's a discussion here of Tolstoy and Kierkegaard. Now, it's just a very, very crude general outline he's going to give you here. And, and so don't worry about it. We're just going to 
just touch on it because they're both very, very, very important writers and thinkers, both of them. And um, he's comparing, um, let's compare with them. Uh, Kierkegaard, of course, was the, was the Christian um, philosopher. It says here, Kierkegaard was born in 1813. Tolstoy was born only 15 years later, though he died in 1910. There is no reason to think that either of them, either of them read anything the other wrote. They are nevertheless alike in many ways. They are kindred 19th century spirits tormented by similar ambivalences and subject to similar paradoxes. Like Kierkegaard, Tolstoy was a Christian who rejected much of the traditional dogma and declared himself an enemy of official Christendom. Had he lived long enough, Kierkegaard, like Tolstoy, might have been excommunicated from his church on the grounds of heresy. In their personalities too, Kierkegaard and Tolstoy resembled one another. Though Tolstoy received the adoration of millions of people throughout his literary career, he suffered from the same sense of personal worthlessness as Kierkegaard. And like Kierkegaard, he can only assume that the evil he perceived in himself and in everyone else must derive from an or original sinfulness in the human condition. It is not too surprising, therefore, that these two great post-romantics eventually reached parallel conclusions about love, marriage, and sexuality. And so he goes on to talk about, you know, um, the sickness unto death is the text of Kierkegaard, um, which has one of the greatest, I don't have it, I should remember to bring it here in front of me, the greatest openings of, of, of a work of philosophy where he asks, what is a self? I'm trying to, he says, is a self is... I used to have it all memorized, but I, but I can't. But then, and of course, the Kreutzer Sonata, Kreutzer Sonata, and a current, and then there's this kind of, um, he's saying they're both in a partly sense creatures of the 19th century. And they both are, they're both are critics of the established order. That is what the official order, whatever that is, whether it's Cop Copenhagen or Moscow, right? Whatever the real, ruling, reigning ideas of the day, as well as believers in a certain sense of certain values that might be said to come from the past, even if it's uh, for them, you know, the religion of Christianity itself. And so it's an interesting dance that they both bring. Uh, Kierkegaard writes a lot about love in uh, the Diary of a Seducer, which I hope to get to one of these days. So that was a little little bit of touch of, uh, of um, the modern period. And of course, at the end of this book, we'll get to probably episodes now he talks about uh, the biologists and the Evolutionary psychologists and social biologists and scientists and chemists and endocrinologists and <laughs> the people the people that taught at MIT alongside Mr. Singer here. Um, and so I'm going to have uh, find a passage from the book one, and then we're going to get to some more movies. So we'll do that. Um, Now, remember I talked about uh, how you have to ask really good questions and how Shakespeare asked these questions. He didn't ask them literally. Like Shakespeare doesn't, so sometimes in, in some of his passages, he does. He does. Certainly in Hamlet, there are passages where, where characters ask um, rhetorical, rhetorical questions, of course, about, about things. 
but but not quite like you know you don't have a uh, a character saying oh, well what is you know but it, it, Cinder here um, Cinder says if love is to function as an ideal particularly the, the very highest ideal we must have criteria for succeeding in this aspiration. Given the diversity of the attitude, we need to know wherein its desirability consists for each individual case. We need answers to various questions. For instance, is there a true as opposed to false or specious love? If so, how do we make the distinction? Is there an object uniquely appropriate to love? In talking first about houses and then about people, I have implicitly distinguished between the love of things and the love of persons. Right? To these, we shall presently add the love of ideals. Now, are these three types of love reducible amongst themselves? And if so, which remains an ultimate? If they are not reducible, which one is best and most desirable? And what are their relations to each other? Furthermore, the attitude of love being composite, that means if love is a composite, right? Excuse me. How are we to order the elements within it? To make ourselves into loving persons, how much importance must we give to bestowal, bestowal as against individual and objective appraisal? That's his old bestowal appraisal, you know, thing. Is that have superior or inferior, which bestows itself upon objects of great objective value, of great or great objective value? And how are we to determine which these are since bestowal itself affects the object's value? Finally, getting out my glasses here, so read them. Finally, why should the attitude of love be singled out as the highest ideal? Is it even defensible as an ideal? Is even the truest love really worth cultivating? These are questions about the ideal of love. In answering them, however, philosophers have rarely separated the ideal from the attitude. To the Platonists, you know, the folks that follow Plato, right? To the Platonists, real love, being the search for absolute beauty or goodness, must be good itself. To a Freudian, for they too are philosophers, at least in this area, love is really just sexuality, although usually sublimated and deflected from its cordial aim. But philosophers uh, are too ambitious. The Platonist argues that even sexuality belongs to a search for the ideal and otherwise, otherwise would not be called love in any sense. The Freudian derives all ideals from attempts to satisfy organic drives and needs, right? So that whatever Plato recommends must also be reducible to love as sexuality. Both types of philosophers do well to be ambitious. If one could reduce the ideal to the attitude or vice versa, the problems of life would be so much simpler. I shall not try to resolve the issue here, but I shall argue that Platonist and Freudian alike have both misinterpreted both attitude and ideal. So Sainer's saying they're both wrong. They both admit that they're wrong in a double sense. They misconstrued the question. Never mind. So they, so they didn't even gotten the question right. Never mind the answer. 
while still both being really brilliant. I mean, I have to say, I have to say, you know, I read Civilization as Discontents in, um, I think in the mid eighties and I have not read a book of, um, I've read few books as good as that book or that is extraordinary. And I have to say, of course, we're still always talking about, um, as far as Plato goes, we're always doing the dialogues, reading the Republic, you know, arguing over and with and alongside the Republic, you know, but what is statecraft? What is justice? What is mercy? And what is love? Right? So, so that was a little taste of his first volume. Um, Plotinus and merging, he discusses the idea of merging, should you, you know, emerge, Plotinus, uh, oneness, influence of Hinduism and Islam, and you just go, I mean, this is amazing. We have to, we have to, have to take, I'm going to put a, a note here to return to this in another, another episode. So I want to come back to some of these movies. Um, oh, I did and uh, you have to bear with me here because these things are all kind of just going all right let's go let's go all right Shoot. No, I don't want this. Damn. Okay, I'm having a bit of trouble. Now it's all about education. No, 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 no. I, don't want, I don't want this stuff to play automatically. Um, finding, um, uh, doing here. Um, one second.
All right, I apologize for that. Um, I can make heads or tails out of this. I still needed the car All right. and still yearned for some contact with her, but finally. We're doing some reorganization. All right. Um, Sorry, I had to re reorganize some things here. So, um, in the history of cinema, um, particularly in the contemporary period, starting roughly in the early 00s, sort of 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, those years, um, there were, of course, new technologies, camera technologies, and um, lighter cameras and all that, and digital. And there was some really, really, really exemplary contributions to that, um, Manny. Simon Lane, Lane um, and then, of course, Claire Denis. Now, Claire Denis made a romantic film called Friday Night, Vendredi Soir, which is about a one night stand a hookup between a man and a woman, entire film. And she's experimenting in this film. It's one of her greatest films, one of my favorite movies. Unfortunately, there were, I don't have a copy because I think they're out of print or they haven't made one yet. Um, in which uh, the camera gets so damn close to the people and to the things. So that's about um, really about intense interior subjectivity, at least of this woman. So I'm going to play a clip of that. And then at the very end, I'm going to play something completely different, also a film by a woman, um, all related to the subject of love. And I thought you should get a taste of this Vendry de Soir because people have forgotten about this film. It's a lost film. It's a great film. And I just wanted to get you a sense of her. It's a Paris, French filmmaker. So trying to.
That's um, Friday night, Vendredi Soir by Claire Denis, and that's Valérie Lemercier and Vincent Lindon as the actors, or the actors in that. The entire two-hour film is like that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's really incredible. And it's actually the, the uh, you know, the premise, I mean, there isn't much of a premise. The premise is that all of Paris is stuck in a bad traffic jam and nobody can go anywhere. And so that's how they meet. Um, uh, so that's, that's that film. Um, I'm gonna play something by Steve Friedrich. Now, I, again, this was gonna require a bit of, um, a bit of, um, yeah. So Sue Friedrich is um, most often um, a short filmmaker. I don't mean that she's not tall. I mean that she works in short, short, short duration time, right? And she um, is in her work. And I believe she's German American and she's identified as part of queer cinema. And she made a, a little film that's like a love story of sorts in which she narrates about her girlfriend or a former ex of hers, but she tells the story of their romance using, and this is right down my alley, using 1970s and 1980s cars that they owned and parking lots and street scenes to tell. And so it's like her reading from this diary and you see this just an incredible film and just get a, it's really, it's, an, there's a lot of humor in it, but it's, it's also serious too, which goes to these different ways of telling a love story. You can have nonverbal dancing that we, this is a vehicular. So this is, um, th this movie is called Rules of the Road. All Sufrijic's movies have titles like Sink or Swim, Rules of the Road, her great film about being queer in, dis in a dysfunctional family, The Ties That Bind. All great. This is Rules of the Road. 
I still needed the car and still yearned for some contact with her, but finally I had to admit that it was too painful. I left town on a three-week business trip and used that break as the excuse not to call her when I got back. I don't know how she interpreted my silence, but she also withdrew. Many months have now passed since the last time I returned the car to her, since the last time I heard her voice. time I laid eyes on the car, I was disappointed by its homeliness, but consoled by the thought that it was unique. At least no one I knew, besides her, had ever owned or wanted to own such a car. <laughs> Consequently, I was surprised to find that there are many thousands of them on the streets of New York. Almost overnight, I went from barely noticing their existence to realizing that I lived in a world swarming with station wagons. By becoming an owner of one, she seemed to have been initiated into a special clan, and by sharing the car with her, I felt I had become an honorary member of that same family. The streets are still full of them, and one of them is hers. I never know when it will happen that she'll drive past me. Maybe she'll be heading to the beach with her new girlfriend. Maybe she'll be slogging home from a hard day's work. Maybe she'll just be going to the store for the paper and some milk. And then again, maybe we'll be stuck beside each other for half an hour. She in her car and I in the one I sometimes borrow from my cousin as we crawl slowly over the bridge in the morning traffic jam. If that happens, I'll pretend I haven't seen her. If that happens, I'll start crying uncontrollably. If that happens, I'll keep glancing over to see as much of her as I can. If that happens, I'll wave and smile politely and then curse her out from behind closed windows. <laughs> All right, that's Rules of the Road by the great Sue Friedrich. Um, and of course I include that not only because it's such a terrific film. Unfortunately, I don't have the entire, it's a it's a 30 minute film, that's just a, eight minutes of it. But uh, to to be to be a little more on the nose about it, to to illustrate that there are many kinds of love in the world and many ways of just describing longing or um, describing a sense of loss or, or uh, anything else involving love. Um, and 
I'm going to conclude this episode of Irving Seniors and Nature of Love with that. And I'm going to wish everybody happy Hanukkah. And of course, doing a concert in a couple of weeks on the 20th with my trio. Um, that same week on the 21st, I'm releasing an episode about James Sturz's book. Uh, really great book. Um, it's indescribable. So you can listen to him and he, he and I talk about at least attempt to describe his novel. Um, I hope you all have a good, uh, decent, if not good weekend. And um, I'm going to leave the rest to surprise. Thank you. <laughs>